to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resonant Advisor. This week's exchange is with Justin Berkman. He was one of the original founders of Ministry of Sound, a London venue that set the tone for clubbing in the 90s. But the whole venture was inspired by his time in New York in the late 80s, in a conversation with Stephen Titmus, it's clear that the likes of Larry Levan and the Paradise Garage still loom large in his mind to the present day. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Justin Berkman is up next. So when and where was your first clubbing experience? First clubbing experience? Okay, rave, house, dance music experience, I guess. Raving specifically is there's no sort of like start point because when I started going out, the word rave wasn't really there sort of and and there was no verb raving. Well, probably there was, but when I first started, I would suggest that it was probably around the Shake and Finger Pop family function, Soul to Soul era of the the raves that they were putting on basically in sort of Camden, Kentish, Kings Crossy area, around 85. And they're like the early warehouse parties that were going on in London at the time, I suppose. They were the early, early warehouse parties that quite often were, you know, hiring a, a warehouse... And then, you know, getting the electrics from a streetlight, you know, sending over the wires onto a streetlight and, and, you know, and just waiting till the cops turn up. And what did you think of those parties going out there for the first time? Obviously, really exciting period in London that time with all the music going on. It was an interesting time. I have to totally admit that musically I enjoyed it, but it didn't blow me away because it was hip hop and rogue groove. And I kind of liked them, but I wasn't being captured by the scene at that point. And I think the moment that I had that, that hallelujah moment was when I heard a house record actually at a friend's house and then started hearing these records being played at the raves. And me and the few friends that I was hanging out with, we were kind of like trying to isolate and pinpoint what that sound was and what that music was, not really understanding what house was or anything about it. So it was a very, very basic, ignorant, blissful and, uh, you know, naive era. And I didn't own any turntables or anything like that and had probably half a dozen records and just started playing around at my friend's house. And before I moved to New York in 86, I played one gig and it was my that would be my first paying, first professional so-called gig, which was at Heaven. 
And we didn't have a clue. It was me and my mate Jimmy. And um, I mean, and Jimmy came through with me all through New York and all the way through to Ministry of Sound as well. You know, neither of us had a clue what we were doing DJ-wise. So it was, um, thank God it wasn't filmed or recorded. But um, yeah, that's where it started. And that was just before we went to New York. So what brought on that trip to New York? Failing as a wine merchant. My father wanted me to be a wine merchant and uh, the idea of being a corporate and having a proper job and doing all that kind of stuff at that point didn't um, appeal to me at all. So after being fired you know, dozens of times by my father, he was trying to set me up as sort of to take over. The, I was the oldest child, so I was going to take over the family company. And it just wasn't for me. He didn't think it was for me either. So he was like, you've got to go and discover yourself. Go. So I just got on a plane, went to New York and started trying to get work there and started bartending um, and then started talking to the kids who were waiting tables who were all out of towners, you know, actors and singers and whatever, people trying to get their careers going. And so we discussed club scenes here in London, the one we just discussed and what was going on in New York. And of course they told me about all the stuff that was going on. So Paradise Garage, Save the Robots, all those clubs, then Nails opened. And that was kind of the spark. And that's when we started going out every night. And I think we went out every night for a year and a half. And it was Nell's Monday through Friday, and then Paradise Garage Saturday, and then Sunday we would sort of crawl around town and up at tracks in the evening. Um, and we did that for pretty much 18 months straight. That's a pretty unimaginable scene compared to what you'd get in most capital cities nowadays. Um, great parties every single night of the week. Must have been a fairly golden era. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, I mean, New York was in that sort of that beautiful Goldilocks period between its warriors, bankrupt New York, burnt out houses, and it sort of completely, you know, disheveled New York, very dangerous, combined with the fact that there was an incredible amount of A-list VIPs living there and going out clubbing, combined with the fact that it was starting to radically um, come up. So it was a really interesting time where you had this excellent edge to it it was as dangerous as hell but it was as fun as hell and it was just it, it just worked so yeah it was an amazing time and really pretty much after i left anyone who's from new york or lived there said it that was it. it it's never recovered it's never had that that moment since so i was really lucky just to hit it at that that moment speaking of the danger element did you ever get into any kind of scrapes or anything like that whilst on the roads like muggings or whatever I lived in Greenwich Village. We accidentally moved to Greenwich Village without actually having any clue what it meant, but got this incredible house and um, realised suddenly that we were living in the epicentre of gay New York. Subsequently, there was no stress because everyone, they may look you up and down, but there would be no stress. There would be no violence or anything like that. There would be the occasional, you know, out-of-towners drive down and throw things at people and be aggressive and stuff like that. And there was a lot of hostility, homophobic hostility from out of towners, but for us living there, we were embraced by the by the, the community and felt very safe and, and welcome there. And it was it was part of the magic that we had. We were living in this island of of kind of, of uniqueness in New York, um, and then just going clubbing, going clubbing and, and working in bars. So it was a, it was a great period. I was twenty three at the time, so I had the energy for it. Fantastic. And you mentioned Paradise Garage, which is, you know, arguably the greatest club of all time. I know it had a massive impact on you. Just to maybe try and sum it up, what was so great about the Paradise Garage? <laughs> Summing it up, yeah, that's a tough one. It seems like it's something that's almost beyond language, but I'm trying to put you on the spot here. I think 
what the specialness of the garage was, was the relationship between the people and the DJ. The club itself was obviously perfect insofar as it had been designed by someone who'd really sat down and worked out what was needed and what was unnecessary in a nightclub design and had really built what was essentially the perfect blueprint for a club. But you can have the greatest club in the world and if the people suck, the club sucks. So, you know, it's all about the people. And it was just, you know, any club or any event is only as strong as its weakest part. And there was no weak part at the garage. The music was brilliant. The DJs were outstanding. The PAs were so memorable. I mean, some of the greatest PAs I've ever seen were in that place. But it was the crowd and it was the reaction that they had and it was that one love and... It was just, it was like a church. It had much more, it wasn't a club. It was much more than that. So you go down the church route and it all starts becoming a bit silly, but it, it was, to us, it was like that. And it you never considered, you know, where are you going to go at the garage Saturday? It was just what time? And us being un, out of, you know, London, you know, sad kids, we weren't cool enough to go there at five in the morning. We were there at 12.30. You know, we were right there from the beginning to the end. But, you know, we got our education like that as well, musically. So once you started going, was it literally every week? Yeah. For, for how long? Till closed. I didn't miss a week. So when I finally got in, I tried three times, failed, fourth attempt in, and then we went every week from that till close. Yeah. And do you have a particular night that, okay, that feels like the pinnacle? Or, or, or... They all were, and they were all uniquely brilliant. The last night was obviously the the maddest experience because you had 14,000 people in the space, which is similar to ministry. So let's say a 1500 capacity club with 14,000 people, or at least it seemed like that. There was a queue around the block that actually started at the door and went all the way around the New York block. And I remember being on the roof garden deciding to go to the bathroom. And it took me, I think, two hours. And I think by the time I got down there, my body just really reabsorbed it. I didn't need to go anymore. It just, it was over. <laughs> it, you couldn't move. It was just packed beyond, you know, ridiculous. That was a, a strange night. That wasn't a usual night. But the greatest night there, it's a really tough one to pick one out. I think Liz Torres, when she sang the first time, was pretty outstanding. But it's really hard to pick one out. Like, um, just to be specific about it, you know, Larry Levan is um, often discussed as the best DJ that's ever been. I just wonder if you could maybe kind of to identify why people say that today because it's obviously hard to explain for some people listening even perhaps listening back to some of his mixes because he's not necessarily the most technically proficient dj he's not necessarily you know doing things as what people would consider today be technically the best way to do things i just wondered being there experiencing it firsthand you obviously have a, a much better insight into that because he was a storyteller and he told stories of love and he made people cry Today, everyone's technically perfect, but there's no message. It's empty. That's why he was so brilliant, because he would create musical, you know, love stories and tell the story and, and people go along with the story. And, and it was beautiful. But at the same time, he would have an incredible skill at manipulating both the sound system and also the, the dancers. If there was a group of dancers that weren't going for it, he knew what record to blow them away with. He could manipulate individual people on the dance floor. He, he knew his people so well, he could just, you know, he could just control like a puppet master. And the way he manipulated the sound just gave it so much more oomph and so much more emotion. And I guess what he was doing by texturizing the sound, which is something that doesn't really, it's, it exists a lot, but today it's just a big green button press on and off bass. But in the old days, we would manipulate the sound all the time. And 
the, the manipulation and the texturizing of the sound with the bass and the treble is, is what gives you the emotion like a Laurence Olivier or, or a Gilgood would give with a piece of Shakespeare. You read it, it's dry. Well, it's brilliant. But when, when a Shakespearean actor reads it, it makes sense. And that's what Levan did. He made sense of all of it. And he would put it all together and he would blow your head off with it. I remember Danny Kravitz telling me a lot of what made Larry Levan great was much beyond the stuff that you could see from a mixtape or whatever. The fact that he would, you know, control the lights. He would even control um, the temperature of the room by shutting the fans on and off and let the cold air come in at a particular part of the moment. You know, it was much beyond yeah, the which, obvious stuff. which he taught me. I mean, and we did that at Ministry. We were doing stuff where we had, uh, you know, we'd start playing music all about talking about burning and put red lights on, switch off the air conditioning and take out the sibilance from the sound. So it become really really heavy and oppressive everyone's sweating like crazy and it became really heavy then all of a sudden chuck a rainstorm in blue lights people with water pistols on the stack spraying people with water all the sibilance comes back uh, and you just blow people's brains out like that it's it's unbelievable the effect is incredible yeah so it's theatrical it was way beyond just records sound system yeah clearly he had the lights he had that big he had that light control thing above his head where he could kill lights but he would also, like, one night he switched all the speakers off except for one of them. One small speaker in the corner of the room. And everyone's ears eventually got used to it. And we all carried on dancing. And we, that went on for, like, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then eventually chucked the whole system in. And again, you know, you just got swept out with a tsunami down the street. It was unbelievable. So it was fun. He was a puppet master. He was a piss taker. He was, uh, had the most wicked sense of humor. Practical joker. So it was all that. It was fun. Today it's all so serious. There's no, there's some fun around, but for the vast majority, it's so serious nowadays. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting, looking at the history of the garage around the time you went, it's after AIDS has hit very strongly, and that's obviously had a huge impact in the gay community of New York. Um, how did that impact the garage itself? It must have changed things a lot in that club. A couple of people told me it was safer for me to be there as a straight guy. Had I been there a number of years earlier, I might not have been quite left alone so much. The cruising scene was very much over us and, having, and living in the middle of it, it, that was quite apparent as well. In the time that we were in New York of our little gang of friends that we built up, three of them died during that period. So it was very obvious to us what was going on. And it was, you know, it was horrific. The Grim Reaper was, all, it was around every corner. So... It was scary, scary times. Subsequently, people really chucked their heart into the music. And I can't talk about pre-AIDS Paradise Garage in New York because I wasn't there and I didn't see it. But as far as my point of view, it was the joy was there, but there was a sort of undercurrent of terror that was going on. Maybe that helped in some way with the music. You know, the angst and that stress and that thing, you know, brought it out. But as far as I'm concerned, it... it uh, it started to close everything down. Obviously, the owners of the garage knew that they weren't well, so the club shut eventually. And regardless of how we were all screaming that we wanted it to stay open, much like today's, uh, you know, people stay in the European Union, you know, it was it, there was nothing we could do about it. It was done and dusted, and we had to just move on. Um, and you personally moved on from New York fairly soon after that, I suppose. When did you come back to the UK? Well, the club shut in September, and I, I came back in February of the next year. So I carried on playing in a few clubs. I, I did a um, residency at, at The World, a club called Brutal, where I was playing Acid House and the Duke of Denmark was playing sort of like really hard end of hip hop. So I got a few residencies and stuff and started playing. But The Garage Gone was just, it was almost like there was no point staying. And like when you'd see people out in the middle of the street that you knew from the club, everyone was so depressed and it was like, you know, what do we do now? 
and everyone tried to go to clubs and try and reinvent what was going on. But regardless, you could have the people, you could have the DJ, even Larry was playing at the world and you had the same people on the dance floor, but it wasn't the same. So the elements weren't all there anymore. And I just felt it's time to go. I want to build my own. I want to do my, I want to do my own. Of course, it was at that point, it was just complete and utter fantasy. There was no way I was going to build my own. But in my head, I had it that I was going to go and do it. So off I trotted and came back to London. So you come back to London. I suppose you're at that time, it's sort of the peak of Acid House in some ways in the UK. What did you make of that contrast? Because that's a pretty big contrast to like the acid house scene of the UK compared to the Paradise Garage. Just before I left New York, I met a couple of uh, guys, a Scottish guy called Simon Gordon, who was absolutely charming gentleman and his brother, I think Josh. And um, these guys came to the garage a few times and we hung out a bit with them. And then when I came back within days, I hooked up with them and they were putting together Hedonism 2. There was no Hedonism 1. So I really like the idea of these guys because they're, they're a bit twisted. Um, so they did Hedonism 2 out in Alperton, out by Hangers Lane, in our old shed, with some really cool DJs. Colin Favor, Jazzy M. Jazzy B was definitely there. Anyway, that was the, the, the get-go. That was the start point of the Acid House scene. Clearly stuff had been going on before that, but for me that was the start point. And it was... Just a London version of what I've been seeing in New York, slightly less stylized, much more grimy, uh, much more messed up, but all equally as fun. So I'd gone from this very stylized, you know, gay, nice music, very intense club to what was a very mashed up, straight, hooligan-esque, you know, scene in London. But they were both brilliant. And, it, and, I, it, and from there, we just flew off. But yeah, Acid House was predominant but it was still I mean if you listen back to the records now from back then that were really predominant most of them unlistenable <laughs> I never really liked them I preferred the acid side and the deeper side so if I could choose any era to live in I still think that would have I'm still I feel very lucky to have been born when I was born and to have experienced that but at the same time, is that it's really, really good if you can try and bring these things back because everything goes in cycles. And at the moment, we're in a pretty grim one, grim part of it. What's grim about the current cycle, do you feel? <sighs> For me, looking at the scene, it's it, everything's very technical. Everything is about looking at the DJ. Everything is about iconoclastic, like looking at DJs and worshipping them and the music that they make or they claim to make. The whole business is a fraud and it is really, really rotten, like all industries they are. But the people are being, they're being defrauded by, by a lot of people. And, and I just think that in the old days, DJs really made the music, really knew how to play instruments. It's the love, the emotion that you get in the old school music, which is just devoid today. I mean, you do get exceptions, clearly. But as a, as a massive generalisation, the music in the old days, in the 70s and the 80s, and into the beginning of the 90s was super, super emotional. And then as I despair with where, the way it is, and I would love to be able to have parties where people see the way it used to be, the one love, the vibe. And it's all about partying together, making friends with strangers, you know. Maybe I'm just getting old, but for me, it's just I see that it's not got that one loveness that it used to. Interesting. And I guess, you know, even though it's rooted in nostalgia, but you know, you've done a tribute to Larry Levan at the club at Ministry of Sound this year. And was that something that you saw some of that old kind of spirit existing in? It's exactly what we had. And that's, that was what was so great about it was because we had, especially the night, the November 
18 months ago. So that would be when I was 16, 14. So November 14, we had the first night in paradise where a lot of the people who went to the garage came down and a lot of people who wanted to have gone to the garage, you know, whatever came down. And there was a cross-pollination of vibe. And we'd done this once before. We did this right at the beginning of ministry where we brought over 250 New Yorkers. The London crowd were getting down and they were enjoying it, but they hadn't quite really liberated themselves yet. They were still feeling a little bit self... Um, what's the word? Self-aware? Self-aware. That's exactly, yes. These New Yorkers came down with uh, Kiss FM. We did this party where Frankie Knuckles came and DJed and it was live on Kiss FM in New York. 200, 250 New Yorkers turn up. And they just went bonkers. And all of a sudden, this, this New York vibe was infected. It was like a virus that went around the dance floor and everyone caught it. And from that moment on, that night on, the dance floor never moved the same. It was different. It changed. It had become more New Yorkized. And people were getting down more and it had more of a black vibe to it. And it was just, it just cracked it and it was amazing. And you see this, this like this watershed between one week and another. And the Paradise Garage Park, the Night in Paradise was very similar to that. It was beautiful because people who had missed it could come and actually get the vibe, feel what it was like. It was virtual reality, but you know, without the goggles. Yeah. So maybe to be specific, one of the key things to run a great party is to have a cross-pollination of crowd, different kinds of people in there working together as one. I Almost. think absolutely. Yeah. I think because at the end of the day, one love, the one thing about the early days was the one love was the fact that it was everyone together with regardless of what you were, color, race, sexuality, age, everything. It was just, you know, it was just who, uh, whatever you, you got down, you just you were, you were one of the clan. If you could get in. If, if you could get in, yeah. Yeah, I'm kidding. Um, no, I'm thinking I'm thinking about back in the days when we were on the raves. I mean, you know, if you could find the bloody place. I mean, we were driving around Nottinghamshire four o'clock in the morning, having, you know, probably filled the car up twice and, and gone to seven different, you know, gas stations to find out where the next drop point was. But when you arrived at the thing, it was just off the hook. I mean, the, the best was the, I think it was a Back to the Future we went to. And we arrived there and it was in Nottinghamshire somewhere. It was in a field, obviously, and there was a, a funfair right in the middle of it. Two articulated 40-foot container stacks of speakers either side of a console and probably 20,000 people all off their nut in the field. And it was one of the greatest moments of my life. I loved it. If I'd played there, it would have been even better, but it was just enough to be there. It was brilliant. Sounds absolutely fantastic, yeah. to be fair. So you're going out to raves and you eventually meet James Palumbo and Humphrey Waterhouse. How did you first come across these two characters, the people that helped you set up Ministry of Sound? So there's this guy called Ray Maudsley, who was a friend of ours who came raving. And he lived in, at the time he lived in uh, Wandsworth and I was living in Sydenham. And so I drive past his house quite often to drop off and say hello and whatnot. And um, we would talk about the garage and all this kind of stuff. And one of the, his roommates um, started going out with James. And she told him about this guy, Ray. Uh, so James was curious to meet this guy, Ray, who had all these brilliant ideas. They met, eventually I was pulled in and I met James as well. And we sat there. It was funny because at the time, Ray and I were, we'd realized that there was gonna be a massive opportunity in the market to create an energy drink. We'd seen Purdy's, which basically, let's face it, does nothing. I mean, Purdy's, I mean, you know, it's like water. Beautiful stuff, but it doesn't do anything. We were selling it in clubs going, this stuff will get you high. And everyone was going, yeah, love it. And we were thinking to ourselves, if we had something that actually really did get them like a little bit boosted by somehow. So did a bit of research in, on it, found out about Kratandeng and Thailand and White Shark and whatnot. And that's what I went to Palumbo with. And I said, I want to do an energy drink. 
And he just wasn't interested. So after we'd exhausted that discussion, he said to me, what else you got? And I said, well, I got a club. And that's what we did. And pretty much started immediately. Was James someone at that time familiar with club culture or was he just from the outside looking in? He knew as much about club culture as I did about merchant banking. Nothing to clarify. Yes. <laughs> I can count it about eight and a half. <laughs> um, so how did you sell him on this thing then? If he, you know, if he wasn't in, invested in the culture? You I'm know. a good salesman. And I uh, also, I think the concept was so powerful and so bonkers. They had the cojones to do it. I mean, you know, I went to school with Piers Adam. Loved the guys, dear old friend of mine. I went to him a little bit further in when the project was going on to see if he wanted to invest. And I explained to him what I was doing. I said, I'm going to open up a club in the Elephant Castle, which obviously when I spoke to James was, wasn't even there. But I went to Piers with Elephant Castle, no alcohol up all night. He said, you're bonkers. You're going to lose all your money. Forget about it. He almost threw me out of his apartment. But somehow James and Humphrey... And I have to say it was James initially, but it was Humphrey's belief in me and my insanity to do this thing. It was just about it has to be like that this way. Justin's way or, the, or, 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 you know, so he was with me. He, he believed in what I was saying. And because of that belief, it happened. Probably any other set of uh, people, it wouldn't have happened. Ministries now existed because of the in- incredibly strange energy between the three of us. And it seems like um, when you was looking to find the initial venue, you had a very specific set of criteria yep. to, for the venue. Can you just talk us through those? The first was not to have any residents within 200 metres of the front door or any door. So that basically cuts out 97% of any place in London. It really brought it down. I then spent six months doing the knowledge, driving around London, driving down all the roads, all the streets, checking out what was what. Every time there was a residential block of any sort, just that area was gone. We gave ourselves a really rigid... We almost got to a point where we'd, we'd stuck a rod up our own back. We really hadn't... We'd, we'd got to the point where we didn't think we were going to make it. The project was almost faltering at one point. And then all of a sudden, just out the corner of my... I drove past Corn Street and saw that space. And that was it. And when I walked in it, it was instant. It was love at first sight. I knew that was it. There was no question. That was it. With all the problems that it had. I mean, it has a glass roof. Who builds a club with a glass roof? I mean, Christ... Especially one that was built 100 years before the club opened. <laughs> so, so describe walking in there for the first time. You know, what did it look like before you took it over? You know, you're mentioning a glass roof. Can you just describe the, the structure? Well, it was a sunny day, thank God. So probably when I went in there, it had more light in there. So it was more, it had this wow moment. See, it was a gar- It was a petrol station at some point, probably 100 years before, and had been used for many different things. But when I went in there, it was just a car park. So I literally just walked in there, a bit trespassing. I just walked in there, had a look at it, walked, walked through the what was the sort of the back part of the garage and then into what is now 103. And yeah, it was that wow moment. You know, you just, just you know, there were like 10 cars parked in there and then, you know, just loads of pigeon shit and loads of pigeons and that was it. It was just empty, derelict bit of land that people had built around and forgotten about. So you opened in 1991. Um, I'm really interested because, you know, you kicked it off and you had no alcohol and a 24-hour license from, from pretty much from the start. Correct. But that era, you know, 1989, we're talking like tabloid press, you know, scare stories about ecstasy and raves and all these kind of things. Um, how did you convince the local authorities that this is what London needed right now, an all-night dance club? First of all, we angled ourselves from, from the beginning not to be 
we never used the word nightclub. When we approached the, the, all the councils, we always approached ourselves as a dance studio. We called ourselves Dance Studio UK. So we didn't smell of a rave or of ecstasy and people wearing colourful shirts. But it's an interesting point, which I'll come to in a second. When we actually went for the, 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 the licence, we had the, the huge advantage of Clink Street going up for the same licence before us. They presented the perfect example of the way not to present. And then we went and did the perfect example of the way to present. Because we were prepared. We had been preparing for months. And just to interject there, so people might not know, Clink Street is Mr. C's absolutely nuts kind of acid house rave, right? I don't know if C was involved. I don't know if Richard was involved okay. at that level. I don't know if it was his, but it was the owners of Clink Street that were looking to get a proper license. Because up until then, it was five stories of recording studios with, I believe, no fire exits. And I've been in there many a times, you know, worse for wear, and thinking to myself, if someone molotov the front door, you know, everyone will fry. It would be horrific. That was one of the reasons why I went and built ministry, because I, I, we were going to all these places, and you always felt, the back of your head, you, this could be, you know, we could all die in here. It wasn't safe. That element was quite big. And then things started going, started going wrong. So, you know, that was the main impetus to actually build the club create a home for all of these nomadic ravers that wanted to go somewhere which was actually safe and not get you know not have a horrible time so clink which was brilliant went in there but they they didn't really do a great performance but what was brilliant was that the police shot themselves in the foot in through that clink street thing and then into ours because they came up with these rather racist almost anti-raver comments and they were talking about all these ravers wearing colorful shirts and stuff like that and there was a lady on the on the committee who was dressed in african cultural clothes and she was getting particularly upset so she was totally going to give us the license yeah she was like she hated the cops because they were just they were talking about these you know these drugged up ravers wearing colorful clothes and she was what like me and you know and she she got really offended by them so they thought we were going to go in there and we were going to get because this music and dance license is not an alcohol license and they were always thinking that we were going to get music and dance license and we were saying we want a 24-hour music and dance they probably thought to themselves well you know when they get the alcohol license they'll be limited to that but we didn't get an alcohol license we didn't want one we wanted the MD. We wanted the 24-hour music MD, music and dance. That was the key. And when we got it, we were off. When you opened, was there any confusion as to, you know, how you guys were going to operate, run this space without an alcohol license? Did did the media understand it? Did clubbers understand it? Because it's it's something that's very, almost the antithesis of British nighttime culture, no drink. With the benefit of hindsight, I now no longer drink. And I have to say I have much more fun when I have no alcohol in my bloodstream. I think it was possibly one of the reasons why the club was so bloody successful. Clearly, no one was sober. I mean, let's not, you know, pretend here. Everyone was off their tits. But there was no liquor in them, or at least there was some consumed before coming in. But it, that wore off. And there was no alcohol. And the alcohol, the lack of alcohol made the vibe so good and so positive. So that's it. So why do we not have alcohol and why do we do all that? It was just, you know, it, it worked. And I think when they got the alcohol license, I was quite disappointed. If you go to, you go to a lot of clubs nowadays, there's not that much alcohol being bought. In the raving clubs, there's not that much alcohol being bought because people know if you're off your nut on ketamine, you start drinking shots of vodka, you're going to die, mate. End the chat. You know, your heart's going to stop. So, you know, people don't, Drink alcohol. And it, it's, let's face it, I mean, I've just been six years in the alcohol business. It's a grim, grim product. 
I've friends of mine to alcoholic anonymous meetings and stuff like that, and it's a grim, grim product. So I have to say, doing it with alcohol, I think, was a, a, a revolutionary thing, but it was probably what made it work and why the club was so fun. Also, the formula of the garage was also alcohol free as well. We had jelly shots with liquor in it at the end of the bar, so I can't be purist. The garage was pure, pure, pure. What I wanted to do with Ministry of Sound was do the garage, but I couldn't do it because of commercial things. Not everyone was going down that route of free drinks. Because you got into the garage, you paid you whatever it was, 20 bucks, 25 bucks to get through the door. You didn't need money after that. Okay, all the drinks that you got were on the bar for free. You could get your, your scoop of your, your fruit juice or water and your fruit and your coffee. It was all free. Ministry was commercial. Not what I wanted to do, but it was what was done. Therefore, you know, it started that way. But you know what? I think it cost three P to buy a bottle of water and we sold them for a pound. So 97% markup on, on drinks isn't bad. I think a lot of, you know, people would love to have that. And um, one thing that was interesting about the Ministry of Sound is how you were... Uh probably one of the first clubs in the UK to really put the sound system at the forefront. Um, can you tell us about how you went and found the sound system that became the Ministry of Sound System? I started doing some research and found a company called Nightwing. And Kenny Powers, who was at that point, as far as I could tell, the only existing Richard Long associate still active. Um, he was working out of Nightwing. Um, so I hooked up with Kenny and... Then we just discussed the whole concept of building a Paradise Garage sound system in London. Now, the, the, the sound system is one element, but what's also important is the actual room it's in and the box, the Keith Slaughter design box. So Keith Slaughter at the time was the number one recording studio guy, and he gave us the concept. So when we put that into the heads of the sound system guys, they suddenly realized that we were pretty serious. Uh, as time moved along, Austin became more and more hands-on with it, and Kenny kind of set, stepped it back a bit. And we ended up with Austin coming over and doing the full install. At the end of the day, it was it was just the most incredible sound system. It was uh, when we opened the first night, one of the crossovers broke, and we only had left. We didn't have right. It was, it was in mono one side. No one could even no one even could tell it was that great. So when we actually got the full stereo out, was heads blown off. But you know, we went down the route, we spoke to loads of people. I'd been working with Turbo Sound in, in heaven. I, you know, a lot of the other speakers are out there. But for me, I had to get a RLA system, something similar to what was in the garage. And I think the power of it is is notable. Obviously, famously, as you walk in, excessive sound levels is uh, a big warning sign. But that danger is actually relatively real. You know, if you did turn it up full way, um, it's, it's probably worth stressing that how just how powerful that sound system was when you first built it. Yeah, it was pretty insane. It was a um, you know 1950s Formula One car. You know, it was uh, it will kill you if you if you don't treat it with total respect. And uh, you know, we it was the sort of the running joke. Every DJ that came into play, we would be like, "Don't turn it to ten because you'll die, and everyone else will as well." So, I think we got 156 dB before distortion, which is pretty loud. <laughs> so the opening night. How did you promote the opening night? You've got this amazing sound system. You've got this fantastic space. How did you tell the London people about that? We selected three magazines, uh, listings, Time Out. My memory, I have to say, is not good, and I can't remember the others, but I think it was L, but I really can't remember. And then there was a, a guy's magazine we won't think for face or ID, but I just don't remember it. It's too long ago. But at the end of the day, we picked three magazines, and we told them what we were, who we were, but we didn't tell them where we were. 
they had an opening date, but no one knew where we were. It was the, 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 the address was secret. And that was one of the advantages of being down there with virtually no one would drive past who drives down Gaunt Street. I mean, you know, but I think before Ministry, it was, there was grass on the road. So it was like, <laughs> you know, it was, I went round to all of the clubs and selected a thousand members. So I went round with all of my friends and basically handpicked the people I wanted to bring in for the first. They were all invited by post. And they were the only people in London who knew where it was. And they came. And when they left, they told 10 friends who told 10 friends. And before you knew it, half London knew where we were and everything. But it was word of mouth, pre-internet, obviously. And those opening nights, um, how many did you do before it started really nailing it? One, two? We, third week, we had Roadblock. Nothing could drive past the Saturdays were massively successful. The Fridays were suffered a bit at the beginning for the success of Saturdays, but then they, then they started to get going as well. But it was pretty fast. And you were certainly one of the first uh, European clubs to start bringing over US DJs. Um, can you tell us about some of the DJs that you asked to come over and, and sort of the impact that had on, on London itself? Yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say, I, I mean, I may be wrong in this, but I think it's fair to say that the Japanese invented the importing of uh, American, That's true, actually, yeah, American yeah. DJs. So I would say that they were the ones that really, really like made that into a, 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 a skill. We then took that and, and developed it even further. But Delirium really were the first ones to bring over the DJs, the Americans. So that was um, Noel Watson. And having been at a few Deliriums and seeing Frankie Knuckles and Tony Humphreys and these guys, it just made sense to to start bringing in a regular foreign DJ every week. I have no idea where that idea came from, but it just happened and it just, you know, we just decided to do it and to bring in a regular DJ. Um, and well, first of all, I approached Judy Weinstein so that I could get to her boys in and that was, she was really helpful and really sweet. And then I asked her about helping me getting Larry and she said, well, you know, it's, you know, you kind of, no one knows really where he is. So I had to go and find him. And I was just very lucky to bump into him in, in the shelter and explain to him what I was doing and got him to give me his details. And I got in touch with his Japanese, Yuki as his manager at the time. And I got his, uh, I got all of that uh, sorted out and brought him over. Of course, the story's well documented about how he turned up eight, eight days late and all that kind of stuff. The DJ that came over with him actually arrived on time. That was Victor Rosado. And Victor was actually, I think, the first American DJ to play in the ministry the night the Levan was supposed to have played, but turned up a late. And then it was just all the obvious. It was, you know, obviously the Def Mix, you know, Masters at Work, Sanchez, Humphreys, all the obvious guys. There were some people I wanted to bring who never came. Merlin Bob was one DJ that I would love to have had because I think for me, he was probably the greatest radio DJ I'd ever heard. The sets that he played on, on WBLS were just mind-boggling, between him and Timmy. Regisford, I wanted to come over as well, but we didn't get him at the beginning. I think he came later, came over to play later. Bobby Condors played at the beginning with Todd Terry. That's quite outstanding. There was no rhyme or reason. It was just kind of like, you know, whoever we could think of and just like, oh, let's get him. And then people would suggest, you know, Austin told me, you've got to get Kenny Carpenter. He's great. So I got Kenny to play and he was. Someone would say, oh, you've got to give this guy a call. You've got to give that guy a call. So Steve Silk Hurley comes and, you know. Uh, it just slowly, slowly built up. But that was one of the biggest differences between the garage and the ministry, was I wanted open decks. The garage was very, very, very uh, secure, that booth, and you couldn't get in there to DJ. It was very difficult to get your hands on those decks, and uh, very few people played there. If you think how many people have played the ministry, 
And how many people have played the garage? It's a ratio of one to 20,000. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's got to be 100,000 DJs have played ministry and like 10 have played the garage. I don't know how many it is, but it's, you know, it's tiny. I didn't want to hog it for myself. I wanted, I wanted it to be a... I wanted to learn for myself. I needed so much to learn as well. I didn't know much. I was still very much at the infancy of my career. So I, I also wanted these guys to come over so I could watch them, learn from them, see what they were doing, technically understand where they were going and all this kind of stuff. Fantastic. And maybe to speak specifically about um, the time you got Larry over, like I read that he really loved it and stayed for three months, which was a long time as well. But on the other side of things, I read that he wasn't in a particularly good way when he came, you know, obviously addicted to heroin at that time, I believe, or... Had he sold his records as well at that point? I think that when I met Larry, finally, because I'd been seeing Larry DJing at the garage, okay, and I'd never met him. So it was just this figurehead, this person that was playing, whatnot. Then when I finally, finally met with him, first of all, my, my first initial thing was, what a lovely guy. You know, he got a terrible reputation for being awful. And he was so sweet and nice and friendly and gentle and, and funny. I think he was... At, his, at a low ebb because he'd been resident DJ of what was, you know, is now the greatest club probably of all time. And he probably felt that and he wasn't playing anywhere. And I can relate to it because I've been in those shoes myself. So I know exactly how he felt. It's pretty grim. Well, you, you, you fall off the cliff and you hit the rocks at the bottom. So, you know, I can relate to the way he was. But when he came over, he wasn't the way he was was the way he was. He was always like that. And he didn't change. He just was the way he was. He came over and he got a new lease of life. New York had eaten him up and spat him out. And he came to London. And he just discovered a place where people wanted to know him, loved him, had fun with him. He was having fun and he just didn't want to leave. So that's what it was, you know, and he had great time. So it was an amazing three months and it was an incredible experience. And he met so many people and enriched so many people's lives. I don't know whether he felt, I mean, you know, he obviously knew that he wasn't well. So he knew that there was an end coming and it was probably sooner than for most. And there was this need or this want to share his knowledge and his experiences. And he was really keen to explain anything to anyone that asked. If you said, Larry, how'd you do it? It'd, be, it'd, it'd bore you to death for three hours and how I did it. But boy, he explain exactly how it was done. And you'd leave, you know, with a diploma in what he just, you've asked him. So he's very generous with his knowledge. Then. Oh, extremely. He was no, there was no way that he wouldn't, you know, there are some people who, who are jealous about knowledge and they won't tell you anything and they don't, well, you know, I, I can't give you that record or anything like that. He'd give you everything. He didn't want anything. He was a totally, you know, as far as I could say, he was completely unmaterialistic. The records were, to him, were irrelevant. I mean, clearly, you know, he, he back in the days, he, he got rid of them because, you know, he was probably became slightly more mobile and didn't think he needed them anymore. And of course, people found them and gave them back to him, bought them and gave them back to him. There's this sort of this cycle going on in New York, which has been well documented. But when he came that night and he played right six o'clock in the morning and, you know, 18 hours later, he's playing the most blinding set that anyone's ever heard records. He's borrowed off three DJs. So he didn't really need them. No, he didn't. You know, he just he, he just had it. It's fascinating. Mm. One connection that came around that time, which is, you know, also well documented, but I find very interesting because, you know, you were a big part in making this happen, was DJ Harvey, who was a resident of the club. Mr. Um, Bassett, yes. Yes, and who met Larry LeVan through that way. I guess, you know, Harvey, when did you first come across him? Because he was one of the original residents at Ministry, right? Do you know what? I, I, I don't know. All I know is, is that I knew Harvey when LeVan arrived here. I don't know how long before that I knew Harvey. I think every country has their genius DJ. And I think Harvey's ours, like Flavio Vecchi is Italy's and Levan was America's. These guys are just, 
they're in a parallel universe. I mean, they're just not on our level. Their, their musical knowledge is just phenomenal. So he was always going to be like, had to be part of it. But when I met him, I really don't know. We probably have, you know, partied too hard together, him and me, over the years. But I've got an ultimate respect for the man. I think he's an absolute genius. And um, I'm jealous that the Americans have got him. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's like a star in on the other side now. Yeah, he is. I mean, you know, he's 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 giving us good reputation, but he's we need him back really because uh, musically he's got so much to offer. You know, he's coming back regularly. He's now it was good to see him at the at the ministry. He's back at XOYO soon as well. So, you know, it's uh, it's good that he's back more often. Do you have any uh, particular memories of those early days with um, Harvey playing at the club? I read that he was very eclectic when he would close out the club and and things like that. Harvey installed some eclecticism, if that's a word, into our, into our general vibe of the club. And what it did is, is that everyone started taking more and more risks musically and the people went with it. And you had some really insane moments where people were playing classical music, Nirvana, all kinds of stuff in the middle of, in the middle of house sets, and people went for it. So I think Harvey and Levan, sort of both of them in a way, kind of gave people a little bit more courage to really take the piss and I think that came out as well so again that was a little bit more that people were willing to take to take more risk because the people were up for it and if you know I had my mate Jimmy B the one I told you about at the beginning you know the one from New York and Jimmy was a terrible DJ he couldn't play to mix two records he'd be playing a hip-hop record and a house record together and there were beats all over the place and no one cared it was just whatever it was like oh, he'll get over it he'll mix it in a minute and he thought it was brilliant and everyone was just laughing and then he got on and it, the party would always work and it, there was no negative judgment. Oh God, listen to that mix or what's, what's that record? Or, it wasn't really that going on. Everyone's off their nut on E and having so much fun. It was just like, oh, whatever, you know, he'll get over it. I've actually found that uh, sense of fun just when someone fucks up in a party can sometimes be the best part. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's obsession about perfection a, a, a bit too much today. It, it's, the, it's the rawness and the madness that's, that's fun. You know, I mean, Levan dropped a... I mean, the famous rainstorm moment in the garage where he dropped a rainstorm for, for a huge amount of time and then he was playing, uh, you know, obviously the Finally record where he played Finally for ages and ages and ages and that was a, that was a joke. But it was just, you know... People were working this out and seeing that it was more than just putting records together. And it was about, you know, creating moments. So speaking of nuts things, um, I was reading back, researching, and some of the marketing campaigns you guys did at Ministry of Sound sounded pretty nuts. Beaming your logo onto the Houses of Parliament was one. Buckingham Palace was another. Yeah, we did the Houses of Parliament, which were literally a huge light, searchlight in the back of a truck tell all the journalists to arrive at a certain time truck arrives back doors open beamed on the thing photographs drive off the whole thing lasted a minute <laughs> <laughs> whose uh, idea was that i cannot remember whose idea that was a lot of these ideas sort of started off with someone's mad idea that then got beaten into something that actually worked yeah. so i can't remember i don't think anyone will i mean if anyone takes credit for that they're probably lying i don't remember i think it was a combined teamwork because at the time we were uh, Lynn Cosgrave, Jim Masters, Jason Hill, myself, and occasionally Burt Bevans were sitting on the top of this arch, which is now a fridge. Um, and we were sitting there trying to work out what band us to do. And it was these were the sort of crazy stuff that we came up with. So you run the club from 1990 to 1994. I just wondered, what do you think was the 
sort of winning formula of Ministry of Sound like that made it so successful? You had the crowd, you had the space. Are there other elements that really made it work? Look, I mean, it's a club's only going to be as good as its weakest part, and it's the crowd were the key, especially year two. It's 92, the 92, 93 crowd. The initial crowd were kind of like, they were kind of a bit like the West End crowd of today. And they, were, they, were, they came, they checked it out, they enjoyed it, and then after a year they left and they went back to their places like Tramps and whatnot. The second year crowd were the really, they were the honest, real hardcore into the music and genuine nutcases that would be there from the beginning to the end. And that was the, true, that was the truest crowd that I've ever seen in London. The only crowd that's as good as that was the one in Naples for me, in terms of for me DJing. The crowd in London year two was brilliant um, and they were so up for it. And the quality of the DJs was outstanding and the, it was the relationship between crowd and DJ. And that's the interesting thing, you know, initially attracting that audience, but maintaining them and keeping them interested in the club and making them feel like they're part of it. How did you do that? Was that really hard to do? I don't think so. I, I can't say for the others, but I, I hope that they felt the same way about the club that I did about the garage, that it, you didn't even question whether you were going to go. It was just what time. You know, we never even thought about not going. So I don't know. I mean, some people have said that to me over the years, and I, I hope that's true because that, that's a, it's an incredibly, it's a, it's a lovely thing to hear that I could have done that with ministry as I'd done, as I'd experienced myself at the garage. But I think it was just the fact that it was, it was a family. It was home. You know, so many people, they would... And there were a number of cr crowds that came. You'd have the early crowd that would come in, and then they would be gone by four. And then there would be the second crowd that came a bit later on stage or made near the end. And then you'd get the third crowd that were working in clubs, the DJs, the promoters and whatnot, bartenders. And then they would come around five, six in the morning. So you'd have all these different waves of people and people come and go. So there would be a movement of stuff and there would be, you know, like three or four different nights in a night. You go to a club now, it's the same people. If you go to a small club, you know, it's the same sort of people. The club will last, what, three hours? You're in and out, it's the same thing. But this was a long night with loads of different people. So it was a movement, change, different vibes. But of course, I think it was the DJs. I really do. I think the DJs of that era at that time were just, just working. And the crowd, uh, we, and I think we booked the right DJs and we brought in the right people. I think that's it. But I, I, you know, I can't underestimate that it's the people. You know, the term super club, by the time you leave in 1994, is almost an established phrase. What do you think about that phrase? And Ministry of Sound were in many ways the first. Yeah, I think the Paradise Garage was the first because they they made records. Even though they were, you know, so it was a club, you know, it was a great club. And, and they had, they, and the music that they were doing was, was coming out on their label. Uh, so when we built Ministry... I think initially, I think we ever discussed really at the beginning that we were going to become a record label. And then it was just one day we said, hey, why don't we do a compilation? Jim and I sat down and basically built up the list of the records that were being played in the box at that time. We played, put the records that were being played that everyone was loving and got Tony to mix it. So it was totally organically made. It was something that was completely from, from the dance floor, from the DJ booth, from the people to the people. You know, I didn't in intend to make a super club and I don't really know what a super club means for me it doesn't really have any particularly positive i think the super club thing was pretty much like that sort of rule rule britannia kind of like tony blair everything's wonderful aren't we great and blow smoke up our own asses for the next 10 years i think we were completely you know off our nuts thinking how wonderful we are we were and i think the super club thing was just a, a negative thing clubbing needs to be underground needs to come from the underground it's the font of so many important industries Obviously, music's key, but, you know, fashion and uh, all kinds of things come from nightclubs. So 
if it gets commercialised and turns into, if, if all the clubs would turn into super clubs, it, we'd all live in, in shopping malls. There's no villages and markets anymore. A club like Ministry becoming a super club was interesting. And the fact that it is the only, I think, super club left, really. In 1994, you left Ministry of Sound. Why did you end up leaving something that you put so much effort into, you know, starting, founding, all the rest of it? I didn't leave in 94. I stopped working at Ministry in about 96. But I stopped being resident in 94. And they created a night called Ruling. And on, I remember the meeting clearly that I was uh, presented the, with this thing about ruling and they, I was presented with who the new DJs were and I wasn't one of them. And that's kind of how it was presented. And that was it. So it was a sort of like nice soft padded elbow out the door. And it was, that was the way it went. You know, just the way the ministry went. You know, people came in with incredible ambitions and sometimes people were in the way. And uh, I was obviously in the way of someone and... I slowly was, was moved, moved to, uh, out to pasture. But I suppose afterwards, you know, you weren't totally out to pasture. You know, you still had a, a pretty successful DJ career. Oh, wicked. Yeah, 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 clearly. Because after that, I moved out of there and I started DJing around the world. And I had an incredible uh, DJ experience. But ministry, like all the big businesses, are, is, you know, it was always going to have a massive amount of politics involved. I mean... And once I got out of that massive business and started working on my own and going out, it was it was it was quite liberating and quite, you know, quite nice to just travel around the world. But, you know, I had this huge banner, this tag that I could, you know, sell myself under and, and work under. And it, it allowed me to play in some of the most incredible parties. You know, it allowed me to do that. I, I, I'm pleased that I left. If I'd stayed there and just re been resident, I wouldn't have had those experience. I was just about to say that, you know, in retrospect, you know, how long can a residency last for anyway? You know, it all has to come to an end at some point. So Absolutely. logically, you would have had to make that move at some point. It perhaps just came a little bit sooner than you might have originally envisaged. I'd done my apprenticeship. You know, I, I almost built the club to do my own apprenticeship in a way, you know, so that I could learn my trade and understand what was going on from all these geniuses and these, 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 these amazing DJs. And then I could go off and do it myself. I guess that's what, that, without really thinking about it, that's what I did. Interestingly, your relationship with ministry didn't end there. You actually rejoined in 2006. Is that right to relaunch some clubs around the world? Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, ministry went on their journey and I went on mine and we didn't really see eye to eye for a good five or six years. And then there was a rapprochement and we started to talk again. And it was about 93 that we started just to have little dabbles of this that, and the other together and sort of thing. And then... 94, the discussion started coming about. At that point, they'd been building already. There. I think they'd built a club in, Thail in, in Thailand, in Bangkok, and another one in Taipei, Taiwan. And they were building the third one, I think, I think it was their third one at this point, they were building it in Singapore, and I was given the call last to come out and check it out, give my opinions on it. And uh, when I got out there, I realised that franchisee was about to stick in a line array. It was basically not interested in making it unauthentic. So I then made it my raison d'etre to try and convince this guy that a ministry without a stack system is not a ministry. And he was building something that wasn't... He was not at really buying it. And then all of a sudden, Zook decided to put in a, a Gary Stewart system. And he gave me the, the angle. And the guy said to me, OK. So we got it. So we got the stacks in there. And then it became a real ministry. And we got 
the DJs from the local area who were really lovely guys and we built a team around it and it really became and it had a little there was a little family going on it was a really nice vibe some little bits you know bits of infighting as there's always going to be and jealousy between DJs but it was really a nice vibe and it was a microcosm of what we'd done at London from so many years back and we're all still mates and we're still in contact it's a really lovely thing we did the same again in Kuala Lumpur the, the following year but then the crisis came and the crash came and they decided not to make any more clubs. Interestingly, we're getting close towards 25th anniversary now. Yeah. Ministry of Sound. Did you ever think that, you know, something that you created would last that long? I don't think you have a child and think you think your kid's going to live till 50 or 22. I think for me, birthing ministry, and I use the word birthing specifically because it is an emotional experience. And you, ha I have an emotional experience attachment to that club way more than I should or that's healthy for me I, I feel like a parent to that that club uh, and I never expected it to live a year or five years or 50 years you don't have children thinking that they're going to live for a certain time period so I didn't know how long it was going to survive uh, even up until probably a month before it opened I didn't think it was going to open and then when it opened I didn't think it was going to stay open for very long I, it was always you never really knew but um, no, I'm pretty shocked that it's 25. And I think realistically now that it's 25, it's no reason why it won't just carry on going. I can't really see any reason why it shouldn't. It's just the important thing is, is, to, is to keep it real and to keep the, you know, keep the music at the, 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 the forefront. That's the most important thing. As long as they keep that as the focus, then, then it should last forever. And it's interesting that, you know, it seems like, you know, not to be disparaging about Ministry of Sound, but it seems like they're trying to bring back music to the forefront, booking people like DJ Harvey, you know, Kerry Chandler, the Larry Levan celebration wasn't that long ago. Do you see a bright future for that side of things, the way they're kind of booking things at the moment? There are hot periods when there are club wars and it's really difficult to to bring in all the top DJs because, you know, some other people are, are, are being extremely difficult about the whole situation. So Ministry have chosen to get a really good quality uh, a DJ, but without getting into that sort of that big war between the, all of the other clubs. So uh, to give it a football analogy, I think they've taken this, they're a bit more like sort of Arsenal than Tottenham than they are one of being a sort of a, a Chelsea or a Man United where they just want desperately to have to have every single brand new top, top, top. They're more interesting growth from the, from the youth and that kind of stuff. So I think it's a more sustainable thing. But I, I, what's happened in the past and what will happen in the future always depends on who's doing what. And ministry, being a big, big company of, you know, 100 plus people, there's always going to be eras depending on who's doing what and wh who the bookers are and who's doing the promotions and whatnot. But, yeah, I think ministry is definitely trying to push towards, uh, you know, music becoming more and more important again for the club. It's a multifaceted business. They've got lots of different things and they can't always focus on everything. And sometimes the club takes a second backstage when they're thinking about something else. Um, and then this club will get loads of attention and something else gets, a, you know, it's 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 a very complicated business. Um, well, it's worth saying we didn't touch on this, but they've they run probably one of the world's biggest independent record labels, you know, aside from running this amazing club. That's it. This you is know. it. And the, the, the compilation side, I mean, it's, 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 it's must be more and more difficult to do because obviously CD sales drop and, and compilations are what they are and whatnot. So, but, um, yeah, the independent record label is, is colossal. And, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't anticipate that at all. 
you know, I, everyone always said to me, you know, you've got to make your own label. And I thought, well, I've kind of indirectly made the biggest one in the world, independent one anyway. Yeah, you know, I think the important thing is, is that the music is at the forefront and that there's an evolution or there's a continual evolution with music. And it's not just about looking backwards or, or concentrating on what's on now, but thinking about what's coming up. And it's just about, you know, just, I don't know. I lost <laughs> the plot then. <laughs> well, we've done a lot of looking backwards, but maybe let's look forwards. You know, what's next for you personally? Well, after ministry decided to stop doing clubs I basically came out of the business and decided to go into something else and try something else I wanted to you know try a whole brand new career in a new industry and I did that for about five years in the booze industry and I really enjoyed it the people were brilliant uh, the product I didn't particularly uh, enjoy selling alcohol but I really really liked the people I was working with I couldn't stay away and I got more and more gigs uh, more and more I just wanted to come back. I just couldn't stay away. I couldn't. I, it, was, it wasn't what I was. And so I've just filtered my entire record collection. I'm going through the whole record collection, sorting out an interesting new set of bits and pieces that have got lost in time and that kind of stuff. Going to be playing all these gigs um, around the 25th birthday. Um, and then after that, just, you know, I've got some, I've got quite a few decent projects coming up. St lot, some bits and pieces that are a bit premature to start talking about publicly, but uh, I got some interesting bits coming up. And, you know, you could definitely argue that that 90s house sound, you know, is certainly in vogue right now, you know, probably perhaps more popular than it's been for a very long time. So perhaps not the worst time to be digging back into your, those old records. One of my favourite people on this planet is David Morales, and he's living in Italy, and he's doing a, a, a programme on TV for DJs. Seen it. You've great. seen it. It's great. And what's amazing is, is that everyone, except for, everyone in Italy, except for David Morales, thought that they were going to get an X Factor on DJs. The only thing is, is that no one told David that. And what David's done is he's actually turned this into a serious forum where DJs are actually getting roasted for pretending. And he's actually saying what you need to do to be a real DJ. And a lot of people can't deal with it. And a lot of people don't get it. But he's actually, I think he's doing something that's so worthy and so, I mean, he's, he's going against the grain on it. And he's, and, and, and he's upset a few people. But I think he's an absolute don for doing it. And I think it's so important that he's trying to make people understand that there is a craft in this and it's not just about being pretty, getting a ghostwriter to write most, mo loads of production for you, get someone to invest in you and, make, and, and, and turn you into a DJ. And, and there will be a day in the future, but the way we're going with, with all this stuff, where the DJ won't even play anymore, there'll be a DJ in the back playing. That's almost where we're getting to. And it's got to go away from that. It's got to be about, I don't care if my DJ's got spots or is bald or is ugly. They've got to be playing good music. We've got to have... It's got to be about that. It's got, and, and that's why, what I love about Davis is he's actually standing on, on, on TV week in, week out and actually, you know, upsetting people saying that. But it's brilliant. Good for him. He's not playing a character at all, is he? He's exactly. not playing a character. Yeah. David is what you see is what you get. And, yeah. and, um, and he'll tell you. I mean, you know, if he doesn't like something, he won't, he won't tell you, he won't make you happy. He'll be honest. If you ask his opinion, you'll get an honest one. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's finish that question. It was, what's, what are you doing next? So. What am I doing next? So I'm going to be uh, DJing over the next six, eight, ten months when the 25th birthday. It occurred to me this morning that for the 26th birthday, we're going to have to do an alphabet party. So because it's now 26, because once you've gone to past 25, it's hard to start getting reasons why numbers are getting exciting. But there's 26 numbers in the alphabet, so we'll have an ABC party next year. 
I'm working very hard on secret projects that I can't talk about. So uh. <laughs> that's, that's a good enough answer. That's a good enough answer. <laughs>